it, it's back into mowing season. Uh, so, you know, during mowing season, uh, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is uh, putting my earbuds in, getting on the mower, and just kind of having that time, just that period. And I am an avid podcast listener. I don't know if anybody else here enjoys podcasts, but I am an avid podcast listener. And really, the genre of what I listen to kind of depends on my mood, to be honest with you. Sometimes it's, it's uh, sermons, sometimes it's historical podcasts, sometimes it's mystery uh, sometimes it's true crime, um, and maybe every now and then I'll throw in a 80s and 90s wrestling podcast. <laughs> um, those typically went out more often than, than anything else. But a f- couple months ago, I uh, started listening to a podcast that was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Now, that is an episodic podcast look at the rise and subsequent fall of a church in the Pacific Northwest called Mars Hill Church. Uh, If you're into that type of thing, I highly recommend this podcast. It's very well done. But I got to thinking about that this week as I was looking at what we're going to be talking about. Uh, And really the theme of what we're going to be talking about today is restoration. So my interest was kind of peak having heard that rise and fall of Mars Hill about what other accounts are there Uh, of not only individual falls from grace and restoration, but also corporate, church, ministry-type falls and restoration. So I kind of went into my Gandalf mode in Lord of the Rings, the fellowship. You know, for those of you who've seen when he goes to Minas Tirith and he's researching the ring, uh, you know, he's down in the, the basement looking through all the archives and everything. So I started looking at all different types of falls of ministries of churches and then the restorations of them and and there was one that really stood out out of all of them that i was reading that i listened to accounts about um there was one that really just kind of stood out to me out of the the hundreds of them that i ran across and it stood out to me for a particular reason because really there's usually a pattern that takes place whenever there is a uh, ministry or a church um a movement that kind of has a fall and then is restored. And that, that pattern is, is you usually have um, you know, a very dynamic, charismatic, undisputed leader of the church, of the ministry. And typically what happens is in the structure of leadership underneath them, you will have a few people who kind of live above reproach and, and have their voices and they, they try to uh, hold them accountable, but ultimately what typically happens is, is the leader decides that they need to be surrounded by yes men and women, and they kind of silence the voice of those that are trying to hold them accountable. And what happens inevitably is that accountability is lost, um, and then at some point the um, kind of the indiscretions, the fall from grace, the immorality, the moral failures, that type of thing will be exposed. Uh, We've seen these happen, uh, you know, over and over in the generations, and we're not actually, we're not too far removed from a few of them, one of them still going on kind of in the mainstream, but we look at that from a historical standpoint. This one was different uh, basically because what typically you see the blueprint of a rise and fall being, this one was kind of flipped on its head. It was kind of opposite. It was different. Because in this one, there was a very dynamic, charismatic, undisputed leader, but, but he was the one that was actually above reproach. 
in this one. Like there was no moral failure. There was no uh, financial issues or embezzlement issues or you know, character flaws or integrity issues. But it was the people that were underneath him that made up the kind of the leadership structure and the hierarchy underneath him. That's where we got into the character issues, the moral failures, the integrity lapses, uh, embezzlement things, uh, name it, you know, et cetera. We, we, we could go on and on with these things. But it still remained that the ironic, I guess, part of this story is that the leader who was the one that was above reproach was actually the one who was still the public face of the scrutiny, of the criticism. Like, I guess that because he was the public face during the, the rise of it, that he was also the public face uh, during the fall of it. And he had, like I said, he was, zero, he was innocent. He, didn't, he wasn't guilty of anything. But yet, he was the one that they went after. And although no charges could stick, no, no claims against him uh, you know, could really be verified or substantiated, it was this leader, it was this person that they wound up persecuting. This is the one that they brought to trial. This is the one that they were holding accountable, this, this ministry's flaws and indiscretions. And like I said, nothing could stick, but yet this, this leader, he was still the one that paid the highest price out of all of them. Now, I don't want that to be misunderstood. The, the other leaders in this story that I ran across, they had to pay prices too. But it was a little bit down the line. It wasn't quite during the height of the story. It kind of faded from memory a little bit, so to speak. And they didn't have to pay nearly as high of a price. And I got to looking for the restoration points of this story. And I was like, all right. And it's sad because as there's a flow with how they kind of go into these things, there's usually also this little bit of a roller coaster of a flow as to how we've got this rise, then we've got the fall, and then there's always moments of restoration that you can build into these stories. And this one was kind of even more sad than normal just because the restoration, if it did happen, it took a very, very long time for the restoration to actually take place. And as a matter of fact, there's two of their of the, the leaders that was underneath in this ministry. They were the primary ones who were really responsible for the fall. They were the two that stood in need of restoration and healing more than anyone. And the sad, sad reality is, is that one of these leaders actually, um, he, he didn't find restoration, he didn't find healing, and he wound up taking his own life. Because of the weight of everything that was coming on him, the weight of his crimes, the weight of his faults and failures, he could never find restoration, nor could he find healing for that. And the way that he dealt with it was that he took his life. Fortunately for the other one that was involved, eventually he found his healing. He found his restoration. And the reason that he found healing and restoration, as opposed to the other gentleman who did not, was because... He didn't look for restoration or healing within inside of himself. He didn't look for restoration and healing in those around him, his, maybe his best friends, his brothers and his sisters or his family. He looked, at the restora he looked for restoration and healing in the only place that we know where true restoration and healing can come from, and that's Jesus Christ. You see, the, the truth of the story is this morning, this rise and fall of this ministry, this is the story of the disciples. This is the story also of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the charismatic 
undisputed, dynamic leader who lived an innocent life, but yet paid the highest price and became the public face of the punishment that was against this movement, this early Christianity. The two disciples that I told you about, the one who didn't find restoration and healing, that was Judas. For his betrayal, he hanged himself because he couldn't find restoration and healing because he didn't look to Christ for it. And the other disciple is going to be the focus of our message this morning, the one who eventually found restoration and eventually found healing for his denial of Christ, and that's the Apostle Peter. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. And I told you that story to tell you this. When John 21.1 starts with a phrase similar to, after these things, those are the things we're talking about. Because if we're reading our scripture and our Bible correctly, then that statement should cause us to ask a question. After these things, well, after what things? The very things that I just told you about. It's after these things, Christ's life, his death, his entombment, and his resurrection. So we're going to read the first 17 verses of John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place with the fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Tend my sheep. I'm sorry, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer this morning.
Father, thank you for your spirit that we feel in this place. Thank you for the wonderful worship and the time of lifting our voices together as a family. God, I pray right now as we uh, dive into your word that you would open our hearts to receive what you would want us to receive. If that's comfort, let us receive comfort. If it's challenge, then challenge us. And if you need to convict us, then Lord, let your word convict us this morning. God, I pray that you would give me words to speak that I would um, relay accurately the words that you want brought forth here this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you inspire me and use my voice to speak your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are here this last Sunday in the month of April, and we are in the last week of the series that we have been in this month, People of the Resurrection. And what we've done is we have taken two people and an event uh, after Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension, and we have kind of looked at their lives to see what difference that the resurrected Christ made to them and then took lessons as to how that can apply to us as well. In the first week, we looked at Mary Magdalene. The second week, we looked at the Apostle Thomas. Last week, we looked at the event of the Emmaus Road and this week, we're going to be talking about the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter's story may be the most recognizable out of these to us as far as his restoration. Uh, and we want to take a deep look at that this morning. And we want to also glean from this what we can to apply it to our lives, that we can draw closer to Jesus Christ. But I also want us to remember that this is a story of restoration, not just for Peter, but for everyone who was on the boat that morning when they encountered Jesus. Now, I, I would be amiss and, and if I didn't say and point out and draw attention to the fact of, man, when things got bad, Peter went fishing. Well, you know, I mean, Peter was one of these that as soon as he denied Christ, as soon as the trial began for Jesus Christ, he was gone. And even though that Peter had been around and seen some of these accounts, because it says this is the third time that Jesus has revealed himself after his resurrection to them. He still was just lost without hope because of his failures. He had not been restored. He had not reached out that, that we know of to Christ to be forgiven and restored of his denying Christ three times. So what does Peter do? Well, it's what we should do when we get discouraged, right? I'm going fishing. Who wants to go with me? So if you're discouraged and you want to go fishing, just call me. We'll go fishing. But this day breaks, and they've not caught anything the entire night. So while we're going to get to the restoration details of Peter, I want us to look at the group and how this resurrected Savior restored everyone, not just the Apostle Peter here. I think that in this story we see three remembrances I think that we see three things that Christ brings back to their mind, brings to their attention, that would have served as a remembrance in order to restore. And I, I kind of want to preface these points by saying this. Most of the time, whenever God is moving to restore you from your failures, he will take you back to the place of your failures. Whether it's physically or in your mind, he will take you back to that place of failure. 
And don't interpret this the wrong way because what we see Christ doing in Scripture is through these moments of restoration, we see him taking them back to their moments of failure, not to judge them, not to prove a point, not to tell you I told you so, or to heap guilt and shame and condemnation on them. I believe that Jesus took them and I believe that he takes us back to our place of greatest failures in order that we can see where he is restoring us from and where he is taking us to. I believe that God is showing us in our moments of restoration that while this was an indescribable failure, there is nothing more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's really good news for our lives that, friends, no matter how, how bad you are, no matter how poorly you've acted, no matter how far you've fallen or how great the failure is, there is nothing that you could possibly do that comes even close to being as strong as the shed blood of the risen Savior. So the three remembrances were going to serve to bring back to their mind where they were so that God could see, he could show them where he was taking them to. The first remembrance would be that of the fish. So we see in this passage that they go fishing. And listen, I, I do a decent amount of fishing, not a whole lot, but every now and then I'll be fishing, fishing, fishing. Now don't misunderstand, I'm not catching, catching, catching. I'm fishing. And I keep bringing it back in with nothing. And I'm just like, I start quoting scripture. I don't know why. Sometimes I even try King James because it just feels more authoritative. You know, yea, though I walketh through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's what comes. But I'll be like, aha, cast to the other side of the boat. Right? It's biblical. It's never worked. Never worked. I'm still fishing. But anyhow, we see that Jesus, they see Jesus, whom they've not identified yet. They see him on the shore, and he calls out to them. And, and we're not going to go deeply into this, but the, the way that Jesus addresses them is kind of humorous because he calls them children. It's like, children, do you have any fish? And they're like, no, we've not caught anything all night. He's like, well, put down the nets on the other side. And they do that. And the net is so full of fish that they can't even bring it back up. And immediately, John receives this revelation. And I don't think it's by any chance that John is also the one who received the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. He goes, that's the Lord. Why did he recognize that? Well, they would have been taken back to the original calling of some of them back in the Gospel of Matthew when they were called to become fishers of men. Now, not all of them were called this way. But I promise you, in my mind, I am confident that in those three, three and a half years that these men walked together, those who were called in this same instance would have relayed that story to the others when they were giving their testimonies of where Jesus brought me from. Well, I mean, I was, I was a fisherman, and I wasn't doing any good, and Jesus told me to let it down here, to lower the nets there, and then all of a sudden there was this net full of fish. It would have quickened their memories and reminded them of who they were before Jesus 
and the fact that Jesus had called them despite all of their faults and failures. So I believe that the fish served as a point of restoration so that their mind could be taken back to that place. There's only one man. There's only one person who's ever done this. And we're trying to get this net up and it's so full of fish. We've not caught anything all night. This has to be the Lord. It says that Peter puts on his outer garment, jumps in the water. And I just, again, this is one of those moments that I would love to see. John's like, that's the Lord. And then all of a sudden they hear this splash. Like, oh, it's Peter. You know, it's like typical Peter there. But it says that Peter swims to the shore. Now, I don't want to suggest or read anything into Scripture, but in my mind I see Peter just so desperate for forgiveness, so desperate for restoration, so desperate to have this one-on-one with Jesus Christ that it didn't matter how far they were out because it said that they might have been around 300 feet, around 100 yards. Thomas, what's that in meters? Come on, you grew up with the empirical system, man. Metric, whatever. 80-ish. Stinking rest of the world and their metric stuff. But he's about 100 yards, about 300 feet away. And they're like, ah, we're just going to take the boat in there. But I believe that Peter was just so desperate to get audience with the Savior that he just jumped in. And I also, I think that that carries the second remembrance for us is the fish were the first, then the jump. Then the jump. Because that would have taken them back to, oh, I don't know, another occasion where Peter jumped out of the boat. Does anybody remember that? When the storm, the storm was raging, and they saw Jesus walking on the water, and of course the good, conservative-thinking-minded people of the followers of Jesus Christ went, well, there's only one reason, there's only one explanation for this. It's a ghost. And then Jesus beckons them to come to him. Who's the one that jumps out of the boat? Peter. Peter was the only one that jumped out of the boat. We can talk about Peter sinking because that worked out really well for Peter. He jumped out of the boat, started walking on water. It was working really well until it wasn't. It worked really, really well until it didn't. Because why? Because Peter took his focus off of Jesus. I believe that would have served another moment of where Jesus had saved them, had pulled them out of this storm, had kept his hand on them as they were navigating through this storm. I believe that not only the fish were a sign of restoration to the disciples, but I believe Peter jumping overboard, they would have been like, this is part two, huh? Okay. That would have also stirred up a memory of when they were with Jesus and when when he delivered them from something. And then the third thing, kind of what I want to spend uh, the rest of our time with here, is the third remembrance, and that was the fire. So we've got the fish, we've got the jump, and we have the fire. Now, why is the fire significant here? I I, kind of want to point out here in verse 9, it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. There's only two times in Scripture that we are given detail that a fire was charcoal. This time here 
Anybody want to guess the second one? It's exactly right. It was mentioned during Jesus' arrest and subsequent trial that Peter went to the courtyard and he warmed himself by a charcoal fire. And it was during that moment that he denied the Savior three times. Think about that. Think about the detail of that. Think about how much God loves his children. That he would know a detail such as that, but not only know the detail, but he would go to that length to make sure that when Peter got to shore, when Peter got to the fire, he would have looked, and it's the exact same fire in which he stood beside to deny his Savior. Now, I don't know about you, and I can't speak for Peter here, but can you imagine the amount of emotions and memories and guilt that is flowing back into Peter at this moment? Because this would have taken him completely and totally back to that place of his greatest failure. And the, and the interesting part is, is that wasn't even, you know, whenever we look at his greatest failure, that comes just immediately off the heels of him trying to uh, deny Christ. He almost rebuked Jesus. You know, when he said, far be it from me, Lord, I will never deny you. Jesus says, by the time that the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And I think that we see, you know, now, I'm going to, I'm going to make a point here, and it's, it's, it's really glad that it's you all that I'm talking to this morning. It's a good thing because... There are people who actually commit the same sin multiple times. I mean, I know that there's none of us in here. All right, but I'm talking about the heathens elsewhere. And yes, I said heathen and not heathen. I'm sorry, we've got some new folk here from some different areas that don't necessarily have the Appalachian drawl just yet. I say yet. So, welcome. We put ours into words where they don't belong. Like the Boston accent, they'll drop them. They don't want them. They go into the market. Oh, look, it's an R. We'll pick it up. Now we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Am I right? But there are heathens elsewhere that repeat sins. That's how you know you're in a real Appalachian church. If you go in there singing, we're washed in the blood, just leave. I'm playing. I'm playing. Don't sound bite me on that one. But when we have, the, we have this tendency that we have multiple times that we fail our Savior, at least for me. Anybody else? Yeah, that there is just multiple, multiple times. And I am so glad. I am so glad that not only does Jesus, is Jesus willing to forgive me, but that he's, he's interested in more than just our forgiveness. He wants us to be restored. He wants us to learn from it. And parents in here, you'll know what I'm talking about is like when there's consequences, when there's failure to your children's actions, you, you're going to forgive them, but you want them to learn a lesson from it. You want them to learn not to do this again. And that's called restoration. But also part of restoration is letting God letting us know, listen, I've not forgotten. But also, 
I'm not interested in proving a point that I was right. Because if there would have been anyone who had the right to look at someone and go, I told you so, it would have been Jesus in Peter's life. Because this is so fresh. This is so fresh on Peter's mind and such a fresh event that Jesus would have been like, hey, did you hear that rooster? I don't know if you remember or not, but somebody, who was it? Who? Oh, it was me. I said that you would deny me three times. I told you so. Jesus doesn't approach it that way. But instead, he looks at him and goes, Peter, do you love me? He goes, yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Tend my flock. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. But you know I love you. Feed my sheep. You see, he not only took him back to that place with his physical senses, with his eyes, with his smell, with the feeling of heat, with the touch, but he also restored him three times. Peter denied three times. Jesus restored three times. But he didn't do it in a way that heaped guilt and judgment on him. He did it in a loving way that brought about restoration. And from that moment on, Peter became the rock that was, the church was built upon. That, that belief, that conviction, those things about Peter, that's the belief that the church is built upon and the gates of hell shall not come against it. I want to read to you Psalm 23 very quickly. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I think that as we go through our life, this is one of those very familiar passages of Scripture to just about everybody. Uh, Christian or not, most people have at least heard of the 23rd Psalm, and that's one of them that we kind of attach ourselves to for good reason. And I think, and I, and I kind of asked this question to some random people just throughout this past week, just to say, okay, out of Psalm 23, what's the part that stands out to you the most? And almost per person, everyone I asked was, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. You're rotting the staff that comfort me. You know, you lead me beside green pastures. That, that's what is most prominent in our thinking when we think about Psalm 23. But I want to submit something to you. I want, I want to kind of propose a thought to you. I don't think that is the essence of Psalm 23. It's not that it's unimportant, but I don't think that is the quintessential essence of Psalm 23. I think it's this. He restores my soul. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing beyond anything we could ever deserve to be blessed with, to be forgiven, that he's with us, that he forgives us. But God's forgiveness isn't nearly as powerful without his restoration. 
Because that's the difference. If he just forgives us, then he would go, I forgive you, and he would keep on walking and leave us behind. But with his restoration, he says, not only do I forgive you, but now I want you to come walk with me. Because in order to be restored, there needs to be this chasm, this breaking of fellowship, this failure. But Jesus said, not only am I willing to say that I forgive you, but now I'm going to restore you into right relationship with me. In church, that's what we're celebrating here today. In your life, there's nothing. There's nothing that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no failure. There's no fault. There's no sin. There's no thought. There's no action. There's no deed that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. And he offers you forgiveness, but we're here not only celebrating the forgiveness today, but allow him to restore you back to the place of where you were when you fell. 